I recall years ago, I believe I was in grade 8, maybe grade 9. Anyway, my parents had decided that our family of seven was outgrowing our house yet again. See, when I was in grade 2 or 3, we put an addition on our, on our house. Now it was time to do it again, but this time... Instead of contractors, Dad decided we would do it. I guess Dad's logic was, well, I've got perfectly good, able teenagers. They can do the grunt work. And so we did. Dug the trench by hand. Built the concrete block foundation. Framed the room. Sheeted, drywalled, painted, wired. One way or another, we had a hand in the whole part of the process. And at the end of the day, when time to, came time to finish, when we were putting on tar paper, Dad asked Joe, our neighbor, if we could borrow his hammer stapler. And he graciously said, yeah, yeah, no problem, of course. Now, it did not belong to us, but we treated it well. We treated it as good as the rest of our stuff. And when we finished for the day, we packed it up along with all our other tools and placed them securely in the garage. Now fast forward about two years. Joe himself was doing a reno, and he approached my dad and he said, can I borrow your hammer stapler? I have no idea where mine is. He says, but I remember two years ago or so when you built your addition that you had one. Oops. Big oops. <laughs> yeah, we had somehow forgotten to return to Joe. Well, after much re- repentance and a few laughs at our expense, we returned the stapler to where it rightfully belonged. Well, today we're going to look at the end of Jesus' earthly ministry. We'll be looking a bit into the ascension of our Lord, where Jesus returns to his rightful place in heaven. Please open your Bibles to Luke 24 and Acts 1. Before we uh, open the word, let's pray. Father God, we come to you this morning. Lord, as we open your word, We pray that you would open our hearts so that we might receive the message that you have for us. Lord, we know from your word scripture that your word is living and it's active. And as we open this morning, we pray that it may cut through the thoughts that are coming between us and you. That it cuts between the distractions that are coming between us. May your word challenge us and change us that we might be the men and women you have called us to be. May your word and you flow from us this coming week. We ask these things in your name. Amen. Luke 24, 50 to 53. When he had led them out to the vicinity of Bethany, he lifted his hands and blessed them. While he was blessing them, he left them and was taken up to heaven. Then they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. 
as they stayed continually at the temple, praising God. And then Acts 1. Acts 1, 1 to 10. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up to heaven. After giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father has promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Then they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or the dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up to the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? The same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back the same way you have seen him go into heaven. Congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ. Ascension Day. What exactly is it? And does it really matter? It's fairly safe to say that the CRCNA is one of the few denominations that recognizes it, calls attention to it, and wraps services around it. Before moving here, we lived in, a, in three hills. To merely say that Three Hills is a Christian community would be a huge understatement. This is a community where if a business thought about opening on a Sunday, the local paper would run a piece to call you out, and a community boycott would not be out of the question. This is a community where one year for Halloween, the management at the store I baked at thought it would be fun if all the staff would dress up and just make it a fun place for the kids. Well, this action caused us to be accused of worshiping witches. We were threatened with an article and a boycott. So yeah, I would say it's a pretty religious Christian community. But it is in this community and in our own church when I asked our pastor, who in town is going to be having an Ascension Day service? Because I knew that some of the larger services they would, they would combine. And my pastor said, when exactly is ascension? It shocked me. It shocked me, especially in that community. In my commentary, when you get to verses 9 to 11, it states, Though Jesus' ascension is not often mentioned by today's churches, 
in the primitive, yeah, you heard that right, in the primitive preaching, the resurrection and ascension of Jesus represent one continuous movement and together constitute his exaltation. In light of that, my opening statement of Ascension Day, what exactly is it, and does it really matter, does seem a little more valid, no? And it begs us to look a little more into it this morning. Our scripture reading for this morning was taken from Luke and Acts. These two books are in actuality a report from Luke to Theophilus. They are two reports given to Theophilus by Luke, one after the other. This does explain the brief first account of the ascension of Christ in the book of Luke, now that we see that volume two was to follow shortly, where Luke would go a bit deeper into the ascension of Jesus Christ. According to my research, Luke's address to Theophilus in Luke of name and title, he addresses him as Most Excellent Theophilus. We can assume that Theophilus, Theophilus sorry, is a person of equestrian rank who became a Christian convert. By contrast, the omission of that title in Acts suggests one of two things. Either the friendship has deepened, so it's more of an intimate relationship, or possibly that Theophilus may have lost that title and that office when he professed his Christian faith. As we start to look at the ascension, the ascension account, if we observe the event as an end of Jesus' ministry, a mind may well draw a parallel to an old Western movie. Picture this, if you will. Everything's in chaos. The bad guys are wrecking the town, stealing and looting from young and old. And suddenly along comes a dude on a white horse to save the day. And of course, the self-appointed sheriff or marshal systematically kills or chases out all the bad guys, restores peace and justice to our little ghost town, and quietly rides off into the sunset. His work done. Is that what we see Jesus doing? Is Jesus just riding off into the sunset just in a more divine way? Never to be seen again? Like our judge, jury, executioner, cowboy? Absolutely not. To be sure, there is a finality. There is a decisive close of one chapter, but there's also a most definite opening of another. It is the consummation of Christ's earthly work. An indication, according to Tyndale, that his followers for his followers, that Christ's earthly mission is accomplished. To be sure, they will see him no more in the old way. When I began this message, I spoke of my family, keeping something that did not belong to us. It would have been very wrong for us to keep it when we realized our mistake. For the disciples, though they would greatly desire Jesus to remain with them, it would likewise be a mistake to hope for Christ to remain with them on earth. It is not where Jesus needs to be. It is not where Jesus belongs now. <clears throat> Have you ever stopped 
to think about the emotional journey those closest to Jesus must have been going through. We may look at, look at all these events with a casual eye. Well, they, those who spent their hours with Jesus, are emotionally torn and dragged from pole to pole. The fast-paced events of these 40 days seem to continue on. In Acts 1-4, we read how Jesus is using these 40 days to prepare his disciples for the coming events. Jesus says, wait. Wait till you receive the gift my Father has promised. It was while he was eating with them that Jesus gives them this instruction. Before we move to the instruction, let's not jump too quickly. What about this whole eating thing? We might think initially, big deal, they're eating. We hear other stories of Jesus eating. But not so fast. In my commentary on Acts, the writer comments how there were many believers that actually had a great difficulty with this note of Jesus eating. Did he really eat? Or was Jesus just fellowshipping with them while they ate? Think this through. Jesus' resurrected body would have no need for food. Now that, now that he has a resurrected body, why would he be eating? Jesus has no need to. Sustenance isn't needed. Now personally, I never, until I read this commentary, the thought of Jesus not needing food never really entered my mind. The assumed reason for Jesus to partake food was sustenance. But remember, his resurrected body would not have required nutrition. So why do it? Jesus consumed food not for himself, but for his disciples. It was for assurance and proof to his disciples that Jesus was really there and he was alive. That they were not believing that they were seeing some phantom or some ghost. Jesus does direct, issue a directive to the disciples that they are not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for the gift that the Father has promised. John the Baptist had alluded to this gift when he was administering a baptism of repentance. When he said, I baptize you with water, but one coming after me will baptize you in the Holy Spirit. Jesus reiterates this by saying in verse 5, For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. As much as the disciples state and focus outwardly, on the restoration of the kingdom of heaven. Verses 6 and 7 show us once again their national pride. While Jesus is speaking of spiritual and eternal matters, the disciples are yet locked in on the earthly, on the temporal. They are believing Jesus is going to make the nation of Jews great and significant among the nations of the earth. Jesus does not say no. He instead says, those decisions are my Father's sole authority. Jesus tells the disciples to remain in Jerusalem until they receive this gift from God. When that gift comes, says Bruce in his commentary in Acts, the disciples will be clothed with heavenly power. That power by which their mighty works were accomplished 
and their preaching was made effective. Jesus was anointed at his baptism with the Holy Spirit and power. Similarly, the disciples after their baptism of the Holy Spirit would be anointed and be enabled to carry on Christ's work. An Old Testament prophet called Israel to be God's witnesses to the world. Well, that task had not been taken up, had not been fulfilled by God's people Israel. But it was taken up by Jesus, the perfect servant of the Lord. And now Jesus passes this torch on to his disciples. Notice the parallel in their uh, directive. In Isaiah it says, Ye are my witnesses. In Christ's words to his apostles, Ye shall be my witness. In verse 8, we read, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. We've read that many times. Would you ever stop to think that this verse could easily be viewed as an outline? An outline for witness of the book of Acts? First seven chapters of the book of Acts is witnessing in Jerusalem. Chapters 8, verse 1 to 11, verse 18, is witnessing in Judea and Samaria. And the rest of the book of Acts is witnessing, preaching God outside the Holy Land to Rome. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. This was the commission that the risen Lord made plain to them. And from there, Jesus disappears from their sight. No additional resurrection appearances will be made. Those who were near Jesus in his ministry really must have been on a journey. Take a minute and put yourself there. Think of the emotional highs and lows in the last weeks, not having the knowledge of what we have. They witnessed Lazarus being raised from the dead. And they witnessed Jesus anointed by Mary. Then they get to experience Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Wow, what a high. And then Jesus stepping so low as to wash his disciples' feet. And then experiencing a Passover meal with Jesus. Before that's even over, building blocks of the betrayal of Jesus by a close friend. Then Jesus is arrested. And then denial of even knowing Jesus by an even closer friend. The agony of watching the crucifixion of Jesus, your hope, and imagining, is all hope gone? Is it lost? And then the resurrection of Christ, and now, the ascension of Jesus. Can you just imagine the highs and lows of that time with those folks? It's hard to fathom. Over the last 40 days, the disciples have witnessed Jesus Appearing and disappearing a number of times. But this time, 
it's somehow different. Jesus is not disappearing, but fading, as he is somehow ascending up to the heavens. And they are watching closely. No, they are intently watching this incredible event. I remember I was about 16 or 17. In Calgary, where I grew up, there was a fairly big church with tall peaks. It was called Grace Presbyterian Church. We used to go there for Christmas services because that's one church that would hold all the CRC churches in Calgary. One year after service, me and a few of my friends picked a spot of one of those high peaks and just started looking there. They'd do nothing but look. Look. Well, pretty soon people are, what do you see? What do you see? All right. And a few of us probably even started pointing to really get attention. They're curious what we were looking at. I even recall seeing cars stopping people rolling down their windows and sticking their heads out, still not seeing. But intently looking, they've got to find out what we're seeing. The problem, of course, is there was nothing to see because we really weren't looking at anything. And it did cause a bit of a traffic jam. And more than one of the adults in our congregation was a little less than impressed with us. But the point is, even though they could not see what they figured we were looking at, they simply could not Take their eyes off the spot. Now can you imagine the disciples staring as Jesus is slowly but surely taken from their sight? I think it's safe to say it would take a major, a major incident for them to avert their eyes from this spectacular event. One major incident is delivered. As they're standing there, watching, Watching where they last saw Jesus, suddenly two men in white, dare we say angels, address them as men of Galilee. Now congregation, contrary to what we may think, this men of Galilee, it's not a compliment. In fact, it's more of a disparaging label. See, they're calling them men of Galilee. They're not calling them men of God. The two are addressing them as men who are engrossed with the concerns of this world instead of the work of God, which Jesus has just called them to do. Reminding them that they had a task, they had a worldwide task to do, and they are Christ's appointed witnesses to tell first those who are nearby, but then expanding to tell all the world about all that Jesus had said and accomplished while he was on earth. Theologians see the ascension as a taking into heaven of the humanity of Christ, a divine action with permanent consequences. If the ascension means the taking of Christ's humanity in heaven, it also means with it, that with it also will be taken the humanity which Christ has redeemed, those who are Christ's. Mule states it's a powerful expression of the redemption of the world in contrast to an escape from it. Remember that, that the ascension of Jesus Christ is a powerful expression of the redemption of the world 
It is not Jesus' escape from it. Think about this. The entire account of the ascension of Jesus Christ in the Gospel of Luke is four verses. Is it any wonder that the ascension plays such a minor role in many Christian churches? But while the ascension account is small, in a sense that does not take up much room in Scripture, the ascension itself is huge. The ramifications for us are enormous. Earlier on, I asked or compared Jesus' ascension, the ascension, Jesus' ascension, leaving this earth to that of a wandering cowboy who stumbles into town, saves it, and afterwards rides to the sunset. And mused if this was Jesus in just a more divine way. And of course, the answer is a resounding no. So if Jesus did not escape, if he indeed, if he indeed did do as we profess and went on ahead of us, what did Jesus go to do? And how does his ascension benefit us? Because frankly, if there is no benefit to the ascension for us, maybe it is best that we do like so many more and brush over it. When I started this message, I spoke of my family and how we had something that did not belong to us. In a sense, if we or the disciples figure that Jesus belongs to us and not to remain on earth, well, for one thing, we have our thinking backwards. Jesus does not belong to us. We belong to him. It was Jesus who paid the ransom for us. Jesus is back in his rightful place. Our confession, our world belongs to God. Articles 26 and 27 says this. Being both divine and human, Jesus is the only mediator. He alone paid the debt of our sin. There is no other Savior. We are chosen in Christ to become like him in every way. God's electing electing love sustains our hope. God's grace is free to save sinners who offer nothing but their need for mercy. Jesus ascended in triumph, raising our humanity to the heavenly throne. All glory, authority, and sovereign power are given to him. There he hears our prayers, pleads our cause before the Father. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. 1 John 2, verse 1. My dear children, I write this to you so you do not, will not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. We've heard a lot about this advocate terminology. Young people, think of it this way. Jesus speaks to the Father on our behalf, speaking for our good. In John 14, Jesus assures his disciples and us when he says, where I'm going, you cannot come now, but you will come later. Listen to this from the message. I think it says it so nicely. John 14, don't let this throw you. You trust in God, don't you? Trust me. 
There is plenty of room for you in my father's home. If that weren't so, would I have told you I'm on my way to get a room ready for you? And if I'm on my way to get a room ready for you, I'll come back and get you so you can live where I live. I think it's a beautiful way of putting it. Question and answer 49 says this, how does Christ's ascension to heaven benefit us? And his answer is this, first, he pleads our cause in heaven in the presence of his Father. Second, we have our own flesh in heaven, a guarantee that Christ our head will take us, his members to himself in heaven. Third, he sends his spirit to us on earth as a further guarantee. By the Spirit's power, we make the goal of our lives, not earthly things, but things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. I'd like to finish with a little practical advocate story. This is an excerpt taken from James Schaap's book, Every Bit of Who I Am. It is a uh, companion devotional to the Heidelberg Catechism study. Now, a day went by that the teacher and students did not pray for Ashley's mom. You see, Ashley's mom used to come in once a week as a class helper, and suddenly, without notice, she had been taken sick. Right away in the hospital, with tubes everywhere. Diagnosis was not good. Cancer, and lots of it. From that day on, they prayed every day for her. Although the outlook was grim, in fact, it looked like she would pass soon. But she didn't. It was a long, hard battle, but she lived. Afterwards, one day, Ashley raised her hand during devotions. Sometimes, she said, sometimes it seemed as if every one of you guys was in the hospital with us. I mean it. My mom says as if we were lifted in the arms of your prayers. Being lifted up by a community of prayers by a community of believers, has to be one of the greatest feelings one can experience. The Apostle Paul says Jesus is interceding for us. He's on our side. Now, congregation, think of this. Christ's ascension means that Jesus is pleading our cause with God the Father. Jesus is lifting us up. I want you to think of that well-known image of Jesus as the Good Shepherd. Seen the picture countless times. Now instead of that lamb in Jesus' arms, I want you to picture yourself there. And as he's lifting you up to the Father, and you hear Jesus say, I died for this one. Jesus is your advocate. Jesus is your comfort. That's what ascension's all about. And yes, it really does matter. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are thankful that we do have an advocate. We do have one speaking in our defense. The perfect one, your son Jesus, who gave of himself for us. We take comfort in the words that the confession says, how Jesus hears our prayers and pleads for us before you.
We also receive a peace, a calmness in the fact that Jesus told us in the word that he is making a room ready for us and will come and get us to be there. We pray, Lord, that as we interact with others, that they may see this confidence and comfort that you instill within us and that we may tell others and that they too may come to know you as Lord and Savior. In the same way that you instilled in the disciples to witness first in their own area and then progressively further out, may we also be your witnesses at home first, then to our neighbors, then to our communities, and to the entire world as you call us and enable us. Amen.